Hey, L2 listeners, we've titled this series Prayer, Unplugging and Experiencing God by Russ McKendry. We hope to explain why we need to pray and how to pray in a meaningful way. You can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Now here's Russ with this week's message. morning it's good it's good to see you all um, welcome to church this morning we have a we have just started a new series on prayer and this morning is kind of an interesting change of pace we're going to be looking um, really at the changes that come to our hearts when we pray and we've been saying over the last couple of weeks that uh, contrary to what many many people believe in the United States right now Many Americans are becoming increasingly, increasingly curious about spirituality. Um, prayer is something that occurs in the majority of our lives. Over 50% of, of people in the United States pray on a daily basis. And even a third of those around, about 30% of those who deny the existence of God, they admit that they pray from time to time. And so... This whole idea of spirituality has some centerpiece in prayer. And this, at the most basic level, when we, when we attempt to encounter God, that's praying. And it doesn't matter whether, whether it's praying for help when we're afraid. It doesn't matter whether it's a word of gratitude when we've nearly been in an accident or whether it's just an outright uh, explosion of frustration when things don't go the way we want them to go. All of those things at their very basic level are the attempt of a human heart to communicate to God. Now, what we're going to look at in this prayer today, we're going to look at one of the less known prayers in the Bible, and it, it reveals something to us far greater than the mechanics of prayer. We're going to look at that in a few weeks. But what you see in these verses, what you just heard from 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, is you're actually witnessing a human heart change. There's a reorientation that goes on here. It's easy to miss, but we're going to be looking at that because it's, it's something that I think all of us are hoping for. We don't like to think that our prayer is in vain. We don't like to think, as people say, that it's bouncing off the ceiling, we want to believe it means something. It means something to God. It means something to us. And I think we find all of those components in this particular passage of Scripture. Now, to under, understand this example of prayer, we're going to have to look at three things. We have to look at the difference between symptoms and problems. What are just aggravating symptoms or what really is the main problem, the root of the issue? Secondly, we're going to have to, to look at the courage that it takes to take action steps, to actually move out from where we are and make a commitment to change. And lastly, we're going to have to look at what Hannah does that helps her grow in her faith as a result of her prayer. And so I want to start with this first part. Now, in many ways, most of you know that I, I do a lot of counseling. My doctorate is in biblical counseling. And um, this is like a case study. And what I want to show you is how 
I would or the counselors in our counseling uh, center would actually look at this case and how we would break it down because I think it's very similar to what many of you are experiencing now or you've experienced in the past. This first point is dealing with symptoms and problems. And this is one of the most important parts of any counseling case, is being able to distinguish the difference between the symptoms of a problem and the real problem. Because until you get to the real problem, all you're doing is, is addressing symptoms that may actually aggravate make the problem worse. Now, the way this works with prayer is that it forces us to admit that oftentimes we're praying for the wrong things, but we don't know it then. And in, in, in kind of the anatomy of a prayer, when you begin to pull it out over a season of time, we begin to realize that we're asking God to do things in retrospect that would have been remarkably harmful if he had granted them to us. And so you begin to see this in this prayer as we begin to pull it apart. Now, one of the distinguishing things of Christianity that you've heard me say this over and over the, again, that the gospel actually pushes us into our lives instead of allowing us or encouraging us to escape. In other words, what I'm saying here, and what I hope to show you in this text, is that <clears throat> Christianity demands of us that we actually face the problems of our lives rather than denying them or dismissing them, explaining them away, it actually challenges us to look deeply at every issue in our life, including those things that are difficult. Now, the reason for that is grounded in the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Because the Bible tells us from cover to cover, it's a book about God, it's telling us that He actually is God, capital G. And He's in control of everything. He works all things according to the purpose of His will as Paul would write in Ephesians 1.11. But, but maybe the clearest statement in all of the scriptures found in what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, he said, God has made everything beautiful in his time. And so the first 10 verses of that chapter are following the first two chapters where Solomon cannot discover significance. It's just futility and vanity that he discovers in the world. And his conclusions in chapter 2 is that he cannot create it, nor can he discover it. And so there's no such thing as significance by the end of chapter 2. But when he writes that statement in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, he's essentially saying there's no such thing as insignificance. Every part of our lives, every facet of our lives actually has a very significant part to it. Almost like a canvas in which a painter is painting and every stroke is necessary to have the picture. You can't add anything to it or take anything away and have the same picture. And so Christianity actually requires of us to openly embrace and to understand every facet of our lives. Now, that seems simplistic when you're facing difficulty. In other words, that is not something that you want to say to a family at the hospital or a young couple that has to bury a child that has died to just say, you know what, God's in control. That typically is not going to bear much comfort. And the reason that it, it, that's difficult for us is, is just in the simple fact to believe that he's in control and to believe that we are pleading with him to change his situation when he doesn't is sometimes frustrating. 
It's like if he is control, if he, if he knows all things and he has all the power that cannot be resisted, then you have to admit that what is in your life is there by permission because he knows about it and there's no force that could resist him. And so if he's not changing it, it forces us to admit that he actually is allowing it to happen. Now, the difficulty of this is, I think, it's, it's, this is a greater burden at some times than at other times. It causes us to, to actually go within our mind almost to a tipping point to say, well, why are things the way that they are? Because Christianity does not leave you open to say that God is not, is not in control. It requires you to believe what the Bible says. For instance, in Daniel 4 and verse 35, he does as he pleases in the host of heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can thwart off his hand and say, what hast thou done? In Psalm 115.3 and Psalm 135.6, it says that whatever he pleases, he does. He's declared the end from the beginning, as Isaiah was right. And so Christianity doesn't leave you in a neutral space. It requires you to conclude what you really believe about things as they are. Now, in Hannah's story, we see that even though we can see the situation that we're in, we oftentimes mistake the problem for symptoms. We oftentimes think the, the issue that we're facing, the thing that we're praying about, is other or different than it is. And it's actually a symptom that is aggravating us more than the real problem because it still is unrealized in our, our life. Now, what you see here is that God's working in this situation with Hannah allowed her to discover what the problem was. He allowed her to discover something that was much deeper in her heart than the mere fact that she could not bear a child. And in that working, you see this maturing that took place in her because she was actually willing to pray. Now, I think when we begin to look at this, we, you pull apart or you look at the anatomy of Hannah's pain, it, it, it explains her situation from several different perspectives that I think are helpful. And again, this is almost like a counseling case in our counseling center. First, you have to consider the presentation problem. Now, a presentation problem when you go in for counseling is basically the aggravation, the frustration, the difficulty that you're facing. It's the most immediate point in which the counseling, the person being counseled, sees the difficulty. That's what brought her in. And the presentation problem in Hannah's case is much like ours. It's different than, than what was really going on deeply in her. Now, many times in our lives when we face, encounter difficulty, we, we can relegate our situation because it's so common. We can relegate it to being just merely happenstance. It's routine. These are just the things that happen to people. And we can kind of just kind of minimize the significance of the situation. What's interesting about Hannah's situation with not being able to bear a child is that two times in chapter 1, verse 5 and chapter uh, 1, verse 6, it said that the Lord had closed her womb. She couldn't have children, and it was God's fault. He was behind it. That was the presentation problem. Now, 
with all due respect to those of you that have known the pain of not being able to bear children, our perception in our culture of this problem is far different than it was then. In ancient societies, having children was directly related to your economic and social status in a way that was very different than our society. Having lots and lots of children meant you had a dependable workforce, you were protected, you knew that you were going to be taken care of when you got old and feeble, there was no social security systems in place, and so having children not only established your present security, it secured your future security. And it had a social implication to it because in those societies, lots of children meant that you were contributing to the well-being of the community. If your community or tribe had lots of children, it kept other tribes at bay. They could tell that you were, you were going to have a lot of, of, of warriors. You are going to have a lot of, of people that could protect your community. And therefore, the community would look at, at women that had many children almost like heroes. And those that couldn't have children were looked at as if their lives were a waste. They failed to fulfill their chief purpose in life. And so both socially, economically, and even emotionally, not bearing a child was a very significant issue, far greater and far different than it is for us today. Now, because of those pressures, it actually caused women in those societies to idolize childbearing. In other words, they got to the point that they saw their whole identity in relation to having children. If they had a lot of children, they were extremely valuable and secure in who they were, and their economic and social status was secure in the community. If they could not bear children, they, they were nothing. And that idolatry was a tipping point that caused them to see that, that, that okay, that having a child was like a savior. It put you in a place that you could never have as long as you could not bear a child. That was the presentation problem. That was the primary issue that was breaking Hannah's heart. If she could have a child, she would have been fine. But until she could, the Lord had forsaken her. Now, it brings us to the second part. Every counseling case will always have a presentation problem, but it will have attending or complicating symptoms. Symptoms that are aggravating the situation, making it more complex, and oftentimes causing you to think that the problem is lodged in some other place than it actually is. Now, the complications that we find in our own life oftentimes kind of deflect our understanding of the situation. In Hannah's situation, there was two things at work. The first one is the mistreatment of others. Now, I believe when you look closely at the passage that you have this feuding going on between Peninnah and Hannah, but it's due in some part to... Uh, Elkanah's uh, favoritism. In, in verse 5 of chapter 1, it, it said that Elkanah loved Hannah, and therefore he, he gave her a double portion. Even though Peninnah had daughters and sons, he, there was a favoritism that was causing Peninnah to actually believe that she wasn't loved as much. And I think that is kind of undergirding that, that's undergirding some of the provocation that Peninnah was doing, because Peninnah was basically rubbing Hannah's face in it, her plight and her difficulty, 
every time she would go to the, they would go to the temple, she would aggravate her and provoke her to this point of irritation. And then it says in verse 7 that the, that the whole situation is made more difficult because it went on year after year after year. It wasn't a, a, a passing situation where you can just kind of bolster and muster your courage for a season and then it will pass and go away. It was something that came up over and over and over again. So the mistreatment of others is something that we can relate to as well. You could take the health difficulty that might cause other people to mock you or to make fun of you, the, a, a relational breakup that would suddenly cause you to realize that you don't have the same access and social circles that you used to, or the loss of a job that would cause embarrassment when you're around your family or other people. And their reaction can actually make the situation far worse than it is. So the mistreatment of others was an aggravating or attending symptom. But secondly, we have to consider our own response. When facing difficult situations in our lives, our response is almost never neutral. A good response can change the situation remarkably to improve it, and a bad response on our part can actually aggravate the situation and make it far worse than it was before. And that is the case with Hannah. In Hannah's situation, her response made the situation far more intense. And I'll show you in just a moment. It caused it to actually be something that, that we can look into and you can see Hannah is not a remarkable person at this point. In other words, this is one of those little windows in which you see that the people of God throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament were just like we are. They had their strengths and they had their weaknesses. And in, in this situation, Hannah's response, quite honestly, is very immature and very childish, in spite of the difficulty that she was facing. Now, our English translations can barely do justice to the intensity that is communicated by the terms that were first recorded in 1 Samuel. The term describing her irritation referred to roaring like a lion roaring with anger. In other words, she is not quietly pondering these things in her heart. She is overtly expressing her frustration, loudly expressing her anger. The term that describes her response to being sulking, it is a disposition where she refuses to eat. She's pouting. She's putting on a, a show. The term that is used for her weeping meant to sob or wail loudly. When it talks about her bitterness of heart, it's talking about a brokenness that is literally as best rendered a bitterness of soul. She's talking about, she's dealing with a pain in her perception that is so great, she doesn't believe that anyone can understand it or relate to it. She's all alone. In a, in a word, Hannah was completely undone. She's off her hinges. And Elkanah's attempt to comfort her only aggravates the situation further. And so we have a basic problem. You've got the presentation problem, and then you have these attending symptoms. And that kind of lays out for us the basic, the, the distinction between the symptoms and even the problem. The second thing that I want you to consider is the courage for Hannah to change. 
Now, as I said earlier, Hannah's change is, is somewhat easy to miss. The answer to Elkanah's question, why do you weep, is simply that Hannah cannot have the thing that she wants more than life itself, to bear a child. As long as she cannot have that, she'll never be happy. The ninth verse, there's something revealed that shows us that a change has taken place. It says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. In Hebrew, that term to rise meant far more than just standing to your feet. It, it literally referred to standing up to prepare to take action. And when you begin to look at it in verse 9, she did two things after she rose, and it shows how intentional she was in that, in, the, in that transition. It says in verse 9 that she went to God, and then in verse 10 and 11, she prays, making a vow to God, promising how she's going to live from there forward. Something changed. Something changed. Now, the short prayer that is recorded in verses 10 and 11 shows us that she poured herself into what she understood about the character of God. When she names him the Lord of hosts, that meant literally the Lord of armies, a host like in the host of heavens with the army of the angels. And so when she refers to him the Lord of hosts, it is combined with this plea that says, look on the affliction of your servant, which brings out one of the most remarkable aspects of Christianity. Because what it brings to the forefront is a tension in our mind that the creator of all, of everything that exists, is still mindful of the brokenness of heart of, of a rural woman that just is just overcoming a sulking tantrum. She believes that he's tender enough, and yet he's still God. And it's leading out one of the most remarkable aspects of Christianity's assertion that God is intensely personal. His greatness, his majesty, his transcendence is not eclipsed in, to the point that he can't be personal and loving and tender. And so she's bringing out a remarkable aspect of Christianity. Now, her prayer also includes this vow that she makes to God in verse 11, she says this. She says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, this is where many people will say, well, she's bartering. She's bartering with God. It's basically an if-then clause. If you'll give me a son, then this is what I'll do. But you have to look, one of the verses that we didn't look at later, in, from verses 18 to 20, you begin to see something that there's a deeper transition going on here. When she says that she'll dedicate her son to the Lord and a razor won't touch his head, she's referring to Numbers chapter, uh, chapter 6 and verse 1 to 5 when it describes a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a Jew, a Jewish person that actually committed himself or herself to the service of God and would not cut his, his hair the entire time of the vow. And so she is saying, as soon as I wean this child, he isn't mine anymore. And there's something exposed there that we don't even find out entirely until you get down deeper into, into the context. 
Her, her vow allows us to see that two things that are crucial to making changes or having the courage to make change actually come to the forefront. The first is realizing the problem. In essence, she was acknowledging that her intense desire to bear a child had become a trap. It had become a savior to her. Her whole identity was wrapped up and it, it, would, it, would, it would, like a watershed, it would go one way or the other based on her being able to have a child. And she begins to see that if God had granted that prayer, she would have never discovered the depth of the real problem. The second thing that we begin to see is that to make change, our hope has to shift. Her hope shifts to the mission of God, having a child that was no longer the end for her. It was a means to an end. Having a child was going to enable her to honor God more. Now, that, that might seem like pushing it a bit further, as I mentioned earlier, that in verses 18 to 20, it says that she prayed and then she was happy. It doesn't say she prayed, got pregnant, and then she was happy. You see, if God had granted the pregnancy which led to the happiness, we would have known that Hannah just got her heart's desire. God just responded by granting to her the thing that she was requesting the most. But that's not the order that we see. What you see is that she prayed and her countenance was lifted up. She became happy. And after that, she became pregnant. And so you begin to see that Hannah hadn't, if she hadn't walked through that difficulty with God, and, and if he had merely granted her the ability to have a child, it most likely would have destroyed her own heart. Because the anticipation of what that child could be to her as a savior, that child could have never fulfilled. It also probably would have destroyed her child. Because those expectations were not capable of being God to one another. And so there's a huge change, there's a, cur a courage and a steps that are taken when she rises, rises up, goes to God and prays. That brings us to this, this last part, the growth of her faith that we see now in verses four, 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Chapter 2 captures Hannah's song, which is essentially a prayer before God, and it says this, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. So after bearing her son, Samuel, who actually would become a leader and a pillar of spiritual influence for Israel throughout the rest of his life, she takes him back to Shiloh and then she dedicates him to the Lord just as she promised. She leaves her son there, and the only time she sees them is when they go back to the temple to worship. Her prayer opens in verse 1 with her actually expressing the overflowing joy that she had in her heart that the Lord had strengthened her through that entire process. She then affirms that there is no other God like the Lord and confessing that our hearts will never be safe if we worship anything but Him in verse 2. Then she expresses the secret that she learned about her faith. She says, the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full 
are hungry and those that are hungry are satisfied. The barren have children and those who have many already, they languish. Now, each of those couplets demonstrates something about the kingdom of God. Each of those couplets tell us that God's purpose to make all things new reverses things in the world. Those that were full are now hungry. Those that are hungry are now full. Those that are barren are having children. Those that have children actually languish. And she's getting deeply into the principle of what God does in making all things new. Now, she makes a rather bold statement about the Lord's majesty in verse 6 and 7 where he's the one that gives life and brings death. But the heart of the prayer is really found in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. The expression he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes in verse 8 is actually the very epicenter, the centerpiece, as I said, of, the, of her prayers. It points to what the writer of Hebrews would capture 1,100 years after she wrote this. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12 and 14, it's referring to going outside the city. The concept of an ash heap was was more than just a fire pit. It was a place where it was a dump outside the city. Anything that was to be discarded and destroyed was taken to the dump. The fire was kept burning pretty much all the time. And it was in that ash heap that the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus died. He was taken outside the city. He was crucified because of the rejection of the people in order to save those who would believe in him but it was all outside the city. And so in Hebrews 12, when the writer of Hebrews captures this and touches upon this, he said, we're going to have to go out there to find him. Now, what you have in Hannah's prayer is saying, that is where I was, destitute. When nothing in my life meant anything, that is where I finally understood. And that is the piece of it that begins to bind this together and to glue this whole process together. Now, I want to conclude with a statement that was taken by, made by Rosemarie Armstrong. And this quote gets at the heart of this. It said, God wants and expects us to pray, but like a loving father, he knows it is not always best to give us what we pray for. He withholds the things we ask for we ask for that would do us harm. He gives, he gives us what we would ask for if we knew all he knows. God gives us what we would ask for if we knew what he knows. That gets at the basis of this whole text. God understood that granting Hannah's prayer of bearing a child in and of itself would have destroyed her. And his work within her heart enabled her to see and to understand what the root of the problem really was. And having understood that, her heart changed. Prayer changes things, and oftentimes it changes us more than anything else at all. All right, let me take a couple questions and we'll be done. <clears throat> How do we let go of the presentation problem to see the real problem 
Why is that so difficult? I oftentimes tell the counselors in our counseling center that this is the trickiest thing. If a counselee or a person seeking remedy in a problem understood the problem, they probably wouldn't come in. Now, I remember Dr. Robert, Robert Young, who started the, uh, the, the counseling department at the Master's Seminary in, in 1988, I think is when he started. He told me emphatically, the presentation problem is never, ever the problem. In other words, it's an aggravation that would provoke us to try to make, to get some relief. In other words, it might manifest itself for a season and you can put up with it. But that slow grind wears us out. And we eventually come to a point that we can't endure it anymore. But the problem that they come in for is never, ever the real problem. And so it's, it oftentimes is difficult. And I think this is where it helps to be kind of engaged with a, a wise, mature Christian community. Because sometimes it takes someone else to objectively look at the situation and be able to identify what the problem really is. And so it's not an easy thing. You can't turn loose of the presentation problem to embrace the real problem without understanding it clearly. And in counseling, I think that's the trickiest part, is identifying the root of the problem. Jesus taught this same way oftentimes. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about, he, he talks about adultery being related to looking on a woman to lust for her. Organically, they're not the same thing. I've had people try to convince me, well, I've already done that in my heart, so I, I might as well all the, go ahead and do it. But when he, talks about, when he talks about murder, he says murder is actually organically related to your ability to say to your brother, you fool. And so it's not the same. He's not saying, okay, because you said you fool, you might as well go ahead and kill him. He's not saying that. He's showing the impetus and the, the, the working of sin in the human heart is oftentimes different than we think it is. And so the answer to that question that letting go of the presentation problem, you can't until you really do understand the problem. You, that's the only thing that you can see at the moment. And that's why we need to be wise. That's why we need to be available and engaged in one another's lives. Because oftentimes it's the voice of a wise counselor, a wise mom, a wise dad, wise friends that can speak into our lives and help us see things that we wouldn't see on our own. Next question. Wow. You're letting me off easy this morning. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. We're going to ask the band to come forward. We're going to take communion. Um, our communion here at L2 is open which means if you're a Christian, we would invite you to partake of communion with us. Communion in its essence is a manifestation. It's an expression of your faith. You're saying my life is defined by a broken body and shed blood. This is who I am. And that's why I would ask those of you that are not Christians, don't do this. Don't tell us a lie about where your life is really at. But those of you that are, Take a few moments to examine yourself. Ask God to show you the parts of your life that need to, to be changed. 
and have the courage to change it. I've had people tell me in the past, they come to communion and it's like they pray the, pray, the same prayer week after week. And they ask God's forgiveness for something that never ever changes. If that's the situation in your life, seek out some help. Try to find out what you need to understand to move forward and to change. All right, let's pray. Father, I would ask that these would be a few moments of clarity in our thinking, that there would be people in this room that the secrets of their heart would be revealed. Almost as David prayed in Psalm 139, that you would search us and try us. You would, you would expose to us and manifest to us if there is any evil or wickedness in our lives. Because, Father, there, there most certainly is. There's not a single one of us in this room that does not sin. And therefore, we desperately depend upon your grace, your tender mercy that actually receives us just as Hannah knew, in spite of you being the creator of all things. And Father, we celebrate that grace. We celebrate the fact that you have indeed raised up a people to bring about your redemption in the world in order that we can be engaged in the advancement of your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that you would attend our worship now, our prayer, and that you would be pleased by what it is that we offer up to you in these moments. We thank you for these things and pray and ask them in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 